there's a lot of stigma when it comes to mental health in anyone and everyone, and that stigma is even greater in athletes. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? So last week, my poor dog had a, a sports injury. Yes. She's been feeling much better. Good. So we went out into the backyard to play a little bit on Sunday, and I promptly tripped over her and twisted my ankle. No. So now, <laughs> so now Lucy and I will be doing physical therapy together. <laughs> well, they put you in the same pool. You know, that would actually be a really good idea because Lucy's very afraid of the water. So she probably wouldn't go in without me. So I'll be like, look, Lucy, we're doing our ankle exercises together. <laughs> we both are old ladies with old joints, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah. So please, everyone, don't wear flip flops when you're playing with your dog. Oh, ouch. Ouch. I needed, you know, a good Olympic endorsed sponsored sneaker. <laughs> Which, you know, and this makes it tough because you know what's coming up. Olympic Day. It is right around the corner. I'm going to have to do some, like, maybe, oh, you know what I can do? The seated volleyball. Oh, there you go. I'm going to try that. So that's right. Uh, June 23 is Olympic Day. The IOC is hosting a virtual workout that I believe we are posting around social media. And uh, we'll do a certificate again this year. We did one last year. Uh, last year, the USOPC had a virtual 5K kind of thing that you could sign up for. So we put together a team through that thing. It doesn't look like they're doing that this year. So just if you do something, put a picture of yourself on social of what you do. So be sporty in whatever Olympic kind of in Denver you would like to do. Hashtag Olympic Day and tag us Flame Alive Pod on all platforms. Or post it up in our Facebook group, uh, Keep the Flame Alive podcast, and we will get you a certificate. And please be careful. <laughs> yeah, no injuries. No injuries. So now I've got a mask and an ankle brace. <laughs> We're going to work on getting you fully covered. <laughs> Bubble wrap me. There, there you go. So I wanted to do a quick follow-up from last week about Paris 2024, because I got to thinking Afterwards, And I didn't get a chance to follow up with the IOC, but it is on my list. So if they have to stick to the 10,500 athlete quota for all of the sports that they have, even the new sports that they put on the program, for Tokyo and the Youth Olympic Games in Buenos Aires, that came to about 184 athletes that they have to either they have to make those new sports have smaller quotas or where are they going to take those from in other sports and events? So either they cut the number of people in an event or they cut entire events. Right. Or maybe you know, they revisit the sports that they've chosen and take one off or take two off. I don't know. I know because some of these I'm looking at them, you know, skateboarding is 
80 athletes? Yeah, that's what I found in research, probably through Wikipedia, but that was because they do two events. They're doing street and park, so maybe they only do one of those events. Or I don't know why there's so many in Tokyo, but they do seem to have a lot of athletes involved. Maybe they're trying to include, be very inclusive in terms of getting National Olympic Committee involvement and different countries involved. I don't know, but it just seemed like, wow, that's a lot of athletes. Even surfing is 40 total, so that's 20 per event. Which isn't that many. No, when you think about it, but then when you put it on top of every other event there, who knows? So it'll be interesting to see. And then remember how the IOC also said no new venues? This is what I really want to follow up on because on March 3rd, the IOC, this is right before the pandemic and right before the postponement of Tokyo 2020, the IOC approved Paris 2024 building a temporary venue at Place de la Concorde, which was going to be a big kind of urban park thing. And at the time they were like, we're not sure what we're going to put in here, but we want to have it. And I'm sure the IOC said, this is going to be cool. You know what I mean? In that that well, way. Well, Place de la Concorde, I mean, is right in the heart of the city. Exactly. So they wanted to put a big plaza kind of event center to have something right in the heart of the city and attract people that way. And But even though it's a temporary venue, those are pricey. So I kind of wonder if that's going to still be there. So that is on my list to follow up on. That will be interesting to see. Though my guess is we're not going to hear anything about Paris for a while. No, I would imagine that's not coming until like the December meeting that they have because that's when a bunch of Paris stuff has to be decided. But right. So there and, and I think Paris is going to keep its mouth shut and let Tokyo take all the heat. Right. For, if they're smart. For the time being. Yeah, exactly. Or figure out or they're spending their time figuring out where they can cut costs because I bet that that will still be top of mind come December. Yes. And, you know, I bet the IOC, you know, they're happy that they awarded 2024 and 2028 at the same time. Yes. I bet they're kicking themselves that they didn't do the same thing for the Winter Games because, you know, that would have been on T-Box No Losers plan and had one do 2026 and one do 2030. And the Swedes would have been so happy. I would have been happy. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see what happens because now, now what do they do? Because they really can't, they really can't talk about bids for a while. No. You know, you got to get out of the pandemic. You got to get, oh, even on a winter bid, you got to get past Tokyo 2020. And then if Beijing, we'll never know how much the Chinese spent on Beijing 2008. So we probably won't know what they're spending on Beijing 2022. And with all this focus on cutting costs down, what does that mean for the Winter Olympics and 2026 and 2030? And we already know from Torino, the Italians have a little problem sticking to a budget. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what happens at the the old IOC session next month. But they won't be together. They're still doing that one virtually, right? Exactly. Exactly. Too bad, because when we spoke to Grace about her, you know, Grace on our, our interpreter, I would have loved, you know, all the back room discussions that would be happening about this situation. But there's no back room in Zoom. Yeah. Anyway, it'll be something to keep an eye on. 
All right. Let's move on to our guest this week. Uh, very excited. This was such a great conversation, and it's one that you've wanted to have for a while. It's probably one that I've wanted to have ever since we heard about Michael Phelps and Simone Biles both having ADHD. Exactly. So this has been on your list, and I'm so glad we were able to cover it. We talked with Dr. Claudia Reardon, who is an associate professor at the Department of Psychiatry of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, and she specializes in sports psychiatry. Dr. Reardon has served on the International Society of Sports Psychiatry since 2010, and she co-chairs the working group Mental Health in Elite Athletes for the IOC. She she also co-leads the IOC Diploma Program on Mental Health in Elite Athletes. She is co-author of the study, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder in Elite Athletes, a Narrative Review, published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. We talked with Dr. Reardon about ADHD and how it affects athletes. Take a listen. Thank you, Dr. Reardon, very much for joining us. I think we need to start with something very basic and what is ADHD? Right. Great question. So ADHD is an acronym that refers to Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It's a rather common brain developmental disorder that, by definition, starts prior to the age of 12, so it's something that has childhood onset, and consists of this persistent pattern of age-inappropriate inattention or and and or hyperactivity impulsivity that causes problems for people in a variety of areas in their life, for example, in school, work, sports, et cetera. So is this something that a person is born with or does it develop from environmental factors? It's probably a combination. Like pretty much all of our uh, mental health symptoms and disorders, there is probably this combination of biological factors that, you know, you are born with that are just somehow related to how your brain developed, you know, before you even were born or in your early years, something about the genetics that you inherited. But also we know that there are environmental factors too that can be risk factors for development of the condition. What would those risk factors um, so, for example, higher amounts of screen time when you're a young child, if you're spending, you know, six, eight, ten hours uh, of your day watching TV, playing video games, on average, you are more likely as a kid to develop ADHD than if you had less screen time. Have they found the causality to that or is that, you know, because I'm wondering, is it because there's that hyperactivity, so you give a kid a screen to keep them calm? versus yeah. the screen causes it? You know, do they know chicken and egg? Absolutely. The chicken and egg question is the right one to ask. And there's a lot of speculation. No one knows for sure. You know, one of the things that a lot of people talk about is if kids get used to all of that intensive stimulation that screens now provide in terms of all these flashing lights and colors and loud noises and, you know, wham, bam, gee whiz, kind of got your attention things, then your brain's used to that. And compared to that, gosh, math is really boring. <laughs> uh, so screens are now, you know, even more engaging in the past. And I, I think it just teaches our brain the kind of stimulation that we quote unquote need in order to stay engaged. So I know uh, Michael Phelps has been very public in terms of athletes, Simone Biles. And as we started talking about this, we just came across more and more elite athletes who have this diagnosis. 
what's, and I know it's something that you've studied. So what got you into studying the connection between ADHD and elite athletes? Well, you know, just take, take a step back. I think in a general sense, mental health symptoms and disorders in high-level athletes have been relatively understudied. There's a lot of stigma when it comes to mental health in anyone and everyone, and that stigma is even greater in athletes. And there's historically been this sense that athletes are externally physically flawless, and therefore they couldn't be anything but internally flawless. And of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I realize that I see that every day in my office as I'm sitting with my athlete patients, but a lot of people haven't realized that. And so it's just been very important for me that we actually do take a systematic, rigorous look at mental health symptoms and disorders in, in elite athletes. And lo and behold, unsurprisingly, you know, we find that these things are not so uncommon in athletes and high level athletes suffer from lots of mental health symptoms and disorders, including probably ADHD at rates that are the same as those in the general population, or in some cases, even higher than the general population. So in terms of percentage, what is in the general population versus elite athletes of the, the appearance of ADHD? You know, it depends on the athlete population you're studying. Are you looking at youth athletes versus collegiate versus professional? I'm going to give a ton of caveats here. You know, <laughs> and, and the other caveat is, is, and as I was just explaining, this stuff is still all relatively understudied. So, for example, we know that about 8.4% of major league baseball players may have ADHD, have been diagnosed with that. But, you know, it's hard to say how that, you know, compares to the general population because there wasn't a direct comparison done as part of that study. But studies show that it's probably approximately equal to the general population, though in some sports, in some positions, it may actually be disproportionately higher in high-level sports. So you can think about certain positions, for example, a basketball point guard, wherein the ability to appear spontaneous to your opponents. You know, you do things that are unpredictable in the eyes of the opponent because, in fact, you are spontaneous. You have ADHD. You don't necessarily plan 20 steps ahead. can be quite advantageous. So it makes sense then that you might see more ADHD as well. You know, a big part of ADHD for a lot of people is this hyperactivity part. That's what the H part stands for. And if you're relatively hyperactive, that perhaps manifests as more physical activity you engage in more exercise just naturally because it feels good to run around and burn off all that hyperactive steam. And that probably begets more athletic talent if you're more active. Right. Because I know that Debbie Phelps talked about Michael Phelps being so hyperactive. So she put him into swimming to kind of burn off all that energy. So do you find that that's also a correlation that parents, as opposed to enrolling their ADHD kids, say, in an instrument where you've got to sit still for a long time, you're going to put them in sports because that's just where the energy goes. Precisely. Parents, either consciously or subconsciously, very much are, are attuned to what helps their kiddo to feel better and to function better and to not be running around the house, climbing on the furniture, acting as if they're driven by a motor. And if your kiddo is calmer after they're participating in an intense two-hour swim practice, you're going to encourage that versus perhaps taking them to that sit-down violin lesson where you know you as the parent are confronted with negative report after negative report from the teacher about how your kiddo can't sit still. 
So we talked about the spontaneousness and sort of the unpredictable way that the ADHD brain can work that can help you in sports. What else about ADHD can be helpful for elite athletes? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, we tend to think of the person with ADHD as having this um, innate inability to focus on any one thing for any great period of time. However, that is not strictly true in all senses. So that if something is inherently of interest and rewarding to the athlete, they can actually what we call hyper focus on it. So the athlete who's just really enamored with sport and really into the game can actually be quite hyper-focused on their role in sport in a way that is conducive to um, repetitive practice and uh, just, you know, refined skill development, which can be really helpful too. And then, of course, the burning off the hyperactivity. If you've got run like a motor, you're going to have the energy to do these insane levels of practice. Absolutely. Those with ADHD are not typically, you know, our lower energy kind of patients in the world of psychiatry, that's for sure. There's also something in ADHD with they can't always think through to the end. And so they tend to be greater risk takers. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So I would think they might be more attracted to things like diving or skateboarding or things where you can break your neck. Yeah, you know, and that's the kind of thing that makes intuitive sense. And for sure, there are sort of studies of cognitive functioning that show some tendency toward um, risk-taking behavior, um, higher novelty-seeking tendencies, as we describe it in the world of cognitive testing. And that probably is conducive to, you know, participation in certain kinds of sports, more willingness to take risk within sport, et cetera, in a way that can, you know, again, beget success in certain activities. So on the one hand, it can be a superpower, but it can certainly also be a hindrance. There's lots of things about ADHD that make stuff harder. So specifically for elite athletes, where does ADHD cause them trouble? Yeah, yep, it definitely can create trouble. And this is where, you know, you're going to be hearing from the coaches if you're the parent of the kiddo who has ADHD or where, you know, you as the grown-up athlete are going to be getting reprimanded from your coaches. So things like the core symptom of trouble focusing and concentrating. If you're the football player who's trying to memorize this big pack of plays or the basketball player trying to do the same, that's going to be difficult. ADHD as well. For some, certainly not all people who have the condition um, can be associated with oppositional behavior, argumentative attitudes, which depending on the sport can make it difficult to get along with teammates. Um, There can be, you know, this uh, sense of frustration, just uh, getting more frustrated if you're not performing the way you want to, if your teammates are are bothering you, sort of mood swings that go along with that that can impair athletic performance as well. As well, you know, the one thing we don't think about, too, for those high-level athletes who are still in school, so collegiate athletes, for example, ADHD can have obvious negative impacts on academic performance. And if you're not academically eligible to continue in college, then that's going to be a problem for collegiate sport participation, too, of course. Time management would probably fall into that category. Oh, yeah. I mean, our (laughs) athletes are so overscheduled. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And then to think about being able to keep track of when they need to be in class versus sports practice versus reviewing film in the weight room, et cetera, it's really it's a challenge for people you know, who don't have ADHD, let alone if you have this condition. A lot of people talk about it being overdiagnosed and overmedicated. So mm-hmm. what is the medication 
portion of that? Just big picture, when you think about treatment for ADHD, you've got the big bucket of, of treatments called psychosocial interventions. You can talk about that later if you want. And then the big uh, bucket of treatments called medications. Within medications, there are non-stimulant options and stimulant options. So stimulants are probably the classic thing that people think of. So the big two categories there are methylphenidate, uh, which is the Ritalin family, depending on country where you're listening from, uh, and then also the mixed amphetamine salt family, brand name commonly Adderall. Um, and so stimulants work in the brain, seemingly by increasing dopamine in certain parts of the brain in a way that allows us to, to focus more for um, sustained periods of time. So these medications are not without risks for anyone uh, you and me, anyone who needs to take them. But for sure, there are um, risks and concerns when it comes to these medications for high-level athletes, too. So most of those, certainly all the stimulants and probably most of the non-stimulants are considered banned substances when we're talking about Olympic-level competition. What about their action causes them to be on the banned substance list? It's a great question. So the non-stimulants are not typically prohibited. There are those options that remain available for most athletes. It's the stimulant class that is prohibited by the World Anti-Doping Agency, so they govern um, Olympic and most international sports as well here in the United States. The National Collegiate Athletic Association prohibits them, and many professional sports leagues also prohibit these substances. So um, there are options for ways that high-level athletes can still get them, even though on paper, you know, the first thing you'll see is that they're prohibited. You can apply, for example, through the World Anti-Doping Agency for therapeutic use exemption to be able to take the medication for a needed medical condition, such as ADHD. Now, the World Anti-Doping Agency doesn't typically um, go into details as to ultimately what led them to the decision to specifically prohibit one single medication. They provide overarching reasons for why medications in general might be prohibited. And we can speculate within great reason as to why stimulants are prohibited by WADA. What we know is going way back more than 50 years now, there are some classic studies that show stimulants to be performance enhancing. So athletes on stimulants may be able to exercise, for example, to higher core body temperatures without perceiving as much heat stress on their body as they otherwise would. So they basically don't feel as tired and they can keep pushing themselves harder and longer than they would be if they weren't taking the stimulants. Um, some athletes may use the medications as stimulants as well to manage weight because they do on average decrease appetite and cause, can cause weight loss. So for sports where a lower body weight is advantageous, it could be misused or used for that purpose, for example. And importantly as well, there are also physical safety concerns for these medications. So, you know, with the being able to push your body to higher core body temperature without feeling as tired out from that, that's obviously a performance enhancement issue, but it's also a physical safety issue. So the, there's a risk for heat exhaustion, heat stroke, if you will, if you're taking high doses in particular, probably of stimulants while you're exercising, um, especially to, you know, really high intensity and in really um, hot environments. 
Okay, now Michael Phelps and his mother talked a lot about him not taking medication. And as a parent of a kid with ADHD, that bothered me a little bit because it made it sound like kids with ADHD don't need the medication, where it's very different among different kids. So what was your reaction to them talking so much about the no medication? Yeah, you know, and without even commenting specifically on their situation, because, you know, I don't know the details. I have not personally examined him or interviewed him, so it wouldn't really be fair for me to comment on him specifically. But just to say I totally get your concern, because there can be, with statements in general like that, not even knowing the exact statement you're talking about, there can be the perception that people have that, well, this is, you know, maybe more in your head, or, you know, if you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps or try hard enough, you can over and you can make such a statement if this were a cancer diagnosis. You know, we're going to do whatever we can to avoid medication for my kid's cancer or for their diabetes. And of course, we wouldn't say that and we would poo-poo that. And, you know, for that to be said about a mental health condition does suggest the possibility of stigma or says that this isn't as real or as uh, treatable. In reality, what we know is that stimulants um, of all psychiatric disorders and medications that we have available to treat them, stimulants are among the most effective. They work really, really well. Now, anyone who knows me knows I do not push these or any class of medications on any of my patients, including and especially my athletes. I'm, I'm pretty conservative in the sense that I am quite aware that these all have significant side effects for some people and potential safety concerns too. But that said, if someone is experiencing significant distress and dysfunction as a result of their mental health disorders, such as ADHD, and we have this thing that can change the trajectory of their whole life in terms of ability to do well in school, ability to get into college, to graduate college, to form meaningful lifelong relationships, to not get in car accidents because you're actually able to pay attention while you're driving, then perhaps we do need to seriously consider medication treatment. You had mentioned that there's some non-stimulant treatments for ADHD. Are there certain types of conditions where a non-stimulant treatment would be better than a stimulant treatment? And what are those non-stimulant treatments? Yeah, great question. So generally speaking, if you look, for example, at the ADHD treatment guidelines, from the National Collegiate Athletic Association, from re uh, recent statements from the International Olympic Committee, the World Anti-Doping Agency. Generally, what you're going to see is that prescribers, providers, at a minimum, consider the use of non-stimulant medications before jumping right to stimulants. And that's for the reasons that I talked about earlier, the performance enhancing concerns, but certainly from you know the perspective of the athlete, the risks to safety and side effects um, that can be problematic in that regard too. So that you know the most classic common non-stimulant option that we think about is adamoxetine, which is a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor that has demonstrated efficacy for uh, treating ADHD. And, you know, it, it, it does work differently than stimulants. One of the beautiful things about stimulants is they work quite literally overnight. With the first dose, you will know if it's helpful for you or not, versus atomoxetine, which can actually take up to months to see effects. And that can be a difficult thing for athletes, say, for example, a collegiate athlete who's about to flunk out of school. They have 
definite bona fide ADHD. You know it. Unfortunately, it's never been diagnosed. Finally, they get into treatment, get this diagnosis. They're about to flunk out. You have two or three months to wait for the non-stimulant to take effect versus the stimulant that you know is going to be immediately effective, uh, assuming that they, they tolerate it. There are certain situations, though, where you really definitely are um, going to be thinking about the non-stimulants, apart from the NCAA and, and IOC and WADA telling us we should be doing this for everyone. And those include, for example, situations where substance abuse has been a concern or is a current concern. So these medications can be abusable. I sort of alluded to that earlier, but they enhance dopamine in the brain and actually lots of drugs of abuse enhance dopamine in the brain. That can be a, a feel-good kind of thing, particularly if you're using it in higher doses than actually are prescribed or in ways that aren't, you know, uh, recommended by the doctor. And so, you know, we have to be really careful about that for patients whose brains are just more likely to become dependent on substances. And that's certainly not to be pejorative or to say that people are going to be intentionally misusing these 99% of the time. But we know that if someone abuses or is dependent or quote-unquote addicted to a given substance, they're going to, on average, be more likely to have that same problem with a different substance. And obviously, you know, we as psychiatrists and other physicians are not interested in worsening problems. We want to we wanna fix problems. So if there's a chance that this is going to cause more, more problem in the realm of substance use, then we obviously want to be careful about that too. And finally, then there are um, some athletes with certain um, medical or other psychiatric conditions that could be made worse by stimulants. So if the athlete is horribly anxious, having bad panic attacks, stimulants can worsen that. If the athlete has certain heart conditions like high blood pressure or um, certain funny heart rhythms or a family history of early heart disease or heart-related death, then you really need to be cautious about using these medications too. So you alluded briefly to the psychosocial treatments as well. And two of the ones that I know are big are creating structure and exercise, which is sort of built into elite athletics. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So there definitely is a research base that supports the idea of exercise as a treatment for ADHD. And you're absolutely right that elite athletes in large part probably have that, that sort of optimized but uh, it is important, though, for athletes to be aware, for example, if they're taking a couple of weeks off from training in between seasons and those couple of weeks maybe coincide with final exam time at college, well, you know, to suddenly stop what is essentially an ADHD treatment, i.e. exercise, may not be advisable, or at least you need to be aware of, of the potential for symptoms coming back. So you're right, there are other types of psychosocial interventions as well. So behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, individual education plans for, for younger students, parent and teacher training. So thinking about things like where is the kiddo going to be able to focus and concentrate best in the classroom? It's probably not in the back row in the classroom surrounded by their buddies or by other people who are sort of the mischief makers in class. Rather, it's the front and center desk with their friends, not necessarily visible to them on either side of them. It's helping teachers to understand that uh, it's really important to immediately reinforce good behavior or behavior where 
from the kiddos really um, demonstrating uh, an ability to focus and concentrate. So that gold star that's just immediately placed on their on their worksheet, et cetera, to really reinforce and support and encourage and congratulate that kind of behavior that you want to see. Caregiver support is an important part because this can be a really hard thing as a caregiver to, to manage. It's not the kiddo's fault. It's not the parent's fault. It is no one's fault. And it's, it's a challenging thing. And, you know, in the case of athletes working with coaches, too, to help them understand that sitting there through four hours of film review or, you know, giving a, a brick of a playbook to memorize may be a bit challenging for some people. And again, some of the things you're talking about where it's an immediate response and close supervision, if you're trying to run faster, when you run, you get the immediate feedback of what's my time, you know, and the coach is right there watching you. So there's so much about elite athletics that just in its structure lends itself to being attractive to ADHD kids. Yeah, absolutely. Sport and exercise is, you know, an example of the perfect medicine, if you will. Now, certainly an insufficient medication for, for people who have significant ADHD, but part and parcel of the whole treatment package. So what do you feel like people who are watching, you know, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, some of the other people with ADHD don't understand about it? Just we as sports fans. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, people who've not suffered with ADHD or people who haven't taken care of patients um, with ADHD, something that I do every day in my office, I think there can be the perception that you kind of hinted at earlier with your reaction to some of the comments that you read that this isn't necessarily a, a real condition or it's something that you don't actually need to treat or, you know, we are over-medicating people unnecessarily. And I think it's an unfortunate impression. It does a disservice to athletes, particularly those like Michael Phelps who've, uh, and, and his family, who've shown such courage in speaking out. So I think, you know, what I would really emphasize to people is this is A, a real medical condition, and B, it is a very treatable condition. Excellent. So I know you've done a lot of work on mental health with athletes in general, and this is a very challenging time for athletes with the coronavirus situation. So what are you telling some of your athlete patients on how to deal with this? Yeah, absolutely. This is a hugely challenging time for so many athletes. It was so sudden, so unanticipated, you know, and we know that times of transition in sport are some of the highest risk times for development of mental health symptoms and disorders. For a number of athletes, this was actually a sudden and unexpected retirement from sport, complete retirement. You know, I think of my collegiate student athletes who are in their last year of eligibility, and they had no idea that come mid-March, they were going to suddenly find out you are completely and forever done with your competitive sport. And that is a, it's a very high risk time, especially if retirement from sport was unplanned. If you didn't have time to make sort of post retirement plans, if you're um, transitioning from sport or from active involvement in sport for who knows how long this period of time is going to be without significant amounts of social support. And those are all the factors we're seeing now. You know, we don't at least have in-person social support to, to the depth that we're used to. We're not surrounded necessarily by teammates in most cases. Um, and so it's a, a really challenging time. 
And what I would say, you know, to athletes, we're sort of getting used to overhearing some of this, but it's worth emphasizing is, you know, our athletes are so used to so very much structure in their life, being overscheduled, if you will, and then to suddenly go to, um, you know, I don't have to go to practice at a certain time. I don't have to be in the weight room at a certain time. If I'm a college student, I don't have to be in the classroom at a certain time because that's all moved online now too. So I might as well sleep in until two in the afternoon, not change out of my pajamas, regular meal times don't matter. And that is just a recipe for depression and anxiety and helplessness and low motivation and low energy. So much as people can maintain a regular schedule, regular workouts, eating well, even if you're living alone and it feels so pointless to prepare healthy meals because it's just for you. It does have a point. It nourishes mind and body. And then importantly, maintaining regular social contact virtually in most cases still at this point is so therapeutic too. So I think that's a big part of it. I think, you know, doing something to acknowledge the emotions that one has about the current loss of sport that our athletes are all suffering is important too. And everyone's emotional response to that is is going to be different. So everyone talks about the great disappointment that athletes are, are feeling right now. And that is really common in what a lot of my athletes are feeling. You know, this was going to be a great championship year for me, or I was going to set PRs this year. I was, you know, really doing well when the season suddenly ended. So that's the experience for a lot of people, but other people are relieved. You know, I was nervous about the season. I wasn't even sure I was going to continue in sport or every, you know, other emotion you can possibly imagine. So to be able to express that to people who you know and love and trust and get validation that way is really important too. Thank you so much, Dr. Reardon. That was really good. She was great. She knew her stuff and she did a fantastic job, I thought, of breaking it down. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, as I mentioned to her, I have a daughter with ADHD, so this was very personal. And it was a little hard not to be personal because it is such a tough thing for kids to to deal with. And there's so much stigma related to ADHD. I, you know, because I, I don't have kids, I don't see it, but I can't imagine what that's like on the day to day and and how much worse it used to be. You know, if you think about it, it's probably getting a little bit better, but the, the baby steps are so tiny. It is. And it depends on where you are. And some teachers are great and some coaches are great and some are not. And they say, you know, why doesn't your kid just work harder? You know, what's wrong with her? Why are you feeding her red dye? That's the problem. So it's, it's, it's hard. And then you've got people like Simone Biles and Michael Phelps. And uh, one of our listeners mentioned Madi Nukunen was also ADHD in a whole other generation of ADHD. And that really, it helps tremendously when people like that talk about and and talk about their experiences. It was also interesting to learn how the different medication options affected doping. Right. Because if you use a stimulant, that's a doping. If you don't use a stimulant, it's the medication for ADHD is so complex as a parent. You know, you get the sheet and you start checking things off and it's it's more art than science in many ways to find the right one for that patient. And the other thing that we didn't talk about was a medication can work for a few years and then they hit puberty. Oh, man. Or you get to be an adult or. Right. And you basically start all over again. Right. Right. And different medications can work better in different circumstances. So, and again, something we didn't cover was 
something may work very well for kids for school, but work against them for sports. Oh, that's interesting. Oh my gosh. That's so tough. Oh, yeah. those of you who have ADHD, we're feeling for you right now. I'm feeling for your moms. <laughs> and dad. I am so with you. Oh, seriously. It's the moms that cover it. Trust me. I'm not saying that there's, you know, we're going to find a single dad that's going to be like, Hey, first time you listen to your show, never listening again. <laughs> Let's see what's going on in, uh, with our team. Keep the flame alive. Welcome to Shiflastan. Wow, someone's been practicing. Somebody has been practicing with my ankle on ice. I can't do too much, <laughs> but I could practice that. Excellent. Well, we've got some great news from Shiflastan. Jake Dalton, our gymnast, and his wife, Kayla Nowak, have announced that they are expecting their first child in November, which is so exciting. When I saw this post on Instagram, all I could think of, because obviously Jake was an uh, Olympic gymnast, his wife was a collegiate gymnast, she has going to have the worst flipping fetus. <laughs> this kid is going to be kicking and jumping before he or she, we don't know yet, even gets out. And I'm like, oh, Kayla, God bless you. Good luck. Oh, that's funny. That'll be exciting to watch. Keegan Randall, our cross-country skier, is supporting the virtual 2020 Alaska Run for Women, which is uh, raising funds for cancer. And that's taking place June 20th through 27th. So it's a virtual event. If you'd like to know more information, see akrfw.org. Our swimmer, Mallory Comerford, is part of a group called Swimmers for Change. And she is going to be participating in a webinar on June 24th that talks with a bunch of swimmers and talks about what they're doing. So we will put a link to that in social. And then Aaron Jackson, our uh, speed skater, was on a recent episode of the Fourth Whistle Roller Derby podcast. She's talking about... Uh, roller skating so i'm excited i haven't listened to that yet so i'm very excited to do so yeah she posted about it and she had some fabulous pictures oh i'm sure i'm sure let's move on to some tokyo 2020 news could the olympics be delayed another year is that a question you want me to answer sure it's not gonna happen yeah i they have said over and over, well, I guess they said over and over again that the Olympics would not be canceled, but they've also said over and over again that they will not be able to postpone them one more year. But apparently an executive board member of the Tokyo Olympic Organizing Committee says they might be able to delay it one more time. So this is coming from the sports newspaper Nikon Sports, which is Japanese, published uh, an interview with Haruyuki Takahashi, who is on the board of the organizing committee. And uh, he's said if they can't pull off the games in 2021, they should start looking to see if they could get another delay. Wow. I really can't imagine that they could do that. This one is costing them enough. They still don't have the village yet and that's the big one because they've sold many of those units yeah i just don't i can't see them being able to maintain facilities i mean it, it's almost like they have to worry about legacy before the olympics even happen 
And I don't mean that in planning for legacy, like actually putting legacy things because they're maintaining venues. Mm -hmm. And the venues that already exist that are in use, you're asking facilities, companies to not book stuff for another year or for, you know, oh, just leave July and open July and August open indefinitely, you know? Yeah, I can't imagine that would happen. But, you know, we are in a world of things we couldn't imagine. That's very true. I mean, how remember in the winter, we were saying they'll never postpone, they'll never postpone. So we are not good prognosticators. (laughs) No, but it is interesting. Yeah, wow. And uh, one of the other interesting things is that more tickets are available, at least in the U.S., on Coastport. And I would imagine that some of the Coastport other entities are, too. And I found out about this through Ken Haskam on Twitter. So follow Ken. I know at least on Twitter, I've got a list of all our Shuklastanis, and he's on that list. So follow him there because he does like a weekly post on five things to know about Tokyo, which is great. But he's also been posting like, hey... There's new tickets available on Coastport. And the deal is that these are not new ticket drops. They are likely refunded tickets. So if people couldn't, uh, decided to turn them back in, then they became available once again. But there have been some marquee events up, like gymnastics has been up, art and swimming has been up, tennis has been up. So there's been some good stuff up there. I got skeet. I got qualifications for skeet. I'm so excited. (laughs) But we don't know the new dates for any of these events yet. No, you don't. And that's the that's the game you're playing because you're still kind of going off the old schedule and you don't know how things are going to shake out. So hopefully, I mean, I got skeet tickets for a day that we don't, we have something else planned for that day already, but they don't overlap and you could probably be late for one or leave one early. But yeah, that's that's the risk you're going to take. But if you are in the camp of... I am going no matter what, and these are the tickets I want. You might as well get them. Right. And even if you buy them now, can you still return them later? Maybe. I don't. I couldn't right. tell you the answer to that, but you might be able to. Or find a way to get rid of them. Right. Because Coastport had announced that they were going to be accepting the refunds for any of the tickets, and then based on the new calendar... Mm-hmm. the new schedule of events, they would again accept refunds. Yeah, so yeah, I think they have to do that just because if the, the calendar works, I mean, it could be that when the new calendar comes out, we've got five events on one day and, you know, literally could not do that. Well, It'll be interesting, could. but it was very exciting to see tickets up for sale again. It made you feel like it's really going to happen. Yeah, and it was stuff that, it, and Skeet was one of the things that we really wanted to see because we want to go see Kim Rohde. Of course. Still hoping for judo tickets. Could not find anything in our price range mm. uh, that had two tickets available. There was a ticket available and a very, very cheap ticket, but there was only one. I didn't want okay, to have sorry, to flip. Sorry, husband. See you later. I'm I know. I didn't want to have you. to flip Ben to go get that. I'm taking him out. <laughs> I'm going to send the dog to run in front of his in front of him so he just trips over it. Oh. I'm doing for you, Jill. Oh, thank you. you Well, I worry about Lucy's ligaments now. (laughs) I know. Between the two of us, I'm telling you, we're like two old ladies and we're going to need one of those little scooters. (laughs) I'll be the old lady with the scooter with the dog on the front. (laughs) Uh, In other news, 
the uh, WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, will be investigating the International Weightlifting Federation on the heels of the McLaren report that just came out. So they've been looking at the IWF already, but they're really going to dig in, it sounds like, and look into them. So we will be uh, watching to see what happens there. And then there is a website called usopu.info. And this is athletes and survivors and supporters of Olympic sport. And they're working toward passing Senate Bill 2330, which is to modernize and rewrite the 1978 Amateur Sports Act, which created the USOC to begin with, the U.S. Olympic Committee. And I haven't delved too much into this. This is something I saw on Twitter and uh, wanted to look into more. It, the bill seems to have come out last year and it was in committee and it doesn't seem like there's been a vote that I can tell. And I haven't, I need to read the bill too that's on the list for the next Good couple luck. of weeks. Yeah, right. But it is something that I think they want more accountability for the organizations who are running the sports, amateur sports in this country. So that is something is to look into. Is the 1978 Amateur Sports Act the same thing as the Ted Stevens Act? Yes. Okay. Because I know we've used both. We've used that term. Right. Lot, Interchangeably. So yes. Right. I want to make sure that I know. Yes. When I sit down to read this bill, can it just come up and sing to me like they did on Schoolhouse Rock? I know. I know. Could the bill just sing itself to me so I wouldn't <laughs> have to read it and be that charming? That would be nice. That would be helpful. And if you are looking for a pandemic snack, the 2020 Olympic Oreos have shown up at Target. Okay, so these Oreos, they're really very pretty, actually. They've got three layers of cream or creme or <laughs> artificial things. Don't, that don't try to do be fancy with you. your Oreos. And they're red, white, and blue. So this is a triple stuffed Oreo. And my first reaction when I saw this is, I'm going to be triple stuffed if I buy a package <laughs> of these. Because they really look so, you give me that and a glass of milk and the ice for my ankle, and I'm good for the there afternoon. Go. There you go. That's what I'll do for Olympic Day. I'll eat Olympic Oreos. <laughs> we will accept that as an activity. I we understand we it's a pandemic. Get some exercise any way you know how, and that's lifting a heavy Oreo to your mouth. It's triple stuffed. Yep. <laughs> that will wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you thought of this week's show. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. triple stuffed. <laughs>